When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, our countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do you disciples... Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house, and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table <laughs> eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, there are different definitions of sin in the Bible, each bringing out a specific aspect of the reality of sin. For example, one such definition is the breaking of the law. Sin is breaking of God's law, and so it's disobedience. That's one way to look at sin and understand what sin is. Another way would be to think of sin as worship. Uh, we worship something other than God or someone other than God. That's idolatry. That's another angle that we can take in understanding what sin is. Yet another definition has to do with living contrary to reality. Uh, the book of Proverbs talks about folly and wisdom. Wisdom is right, folly is wrong, and folly is living apart from the way God sees us and the world. And there, of course, there are a few more like slavery or addiction or unbelief or unfaithfulness. All these different ways um, to understand sin are helpful, and we actually need to embrace all of them in Scripture to get a fuller view of what sin is and what sin does. But today, I'm focusing on one specific understanding of sin that we find in our passage, which is defilement or uncleanness. So we're looking at sin as defilement or uncleanness in this passage, and we'll see how from this understanding of sin, we also get an understanding of grace that is fuller and more helpful to us. Uh, as we continue our series on the Gospel of Mark, our goal remains. We want to see Jesus as He is. We want to see Him as He Himself presents Himself to us so we can relate to Him in the right way. And so today... As we look at our passage, we see Jesus as one who came to confront and to cleanse us from the defilement of sin. So in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7, we see the confrontation. Here Jesus responds to the accusations of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as he responds, he exposes their inability to cleanse themselves from sin. And then in verses 14 through 23, Jesus explains to his disciples, so this is after he confronts the Pharisees, now he retreats and has a chance to explain more of what happened to his disciples. We see that dynamic often playing out. The disciples hear something publicly and then they, they talk to Jesus privately and he explains it to them. So in verses 14 through 23, Jesus explains to his disciples the nature of our defilement, what it is, that actually it isn't external, but it is internal. And then in verses 53 through 56 of chapter 6, and then in verses 24 through 30 in chapter 7, so kind of on either side of this confrontation with the Pharisees, we see Jesus' grace cleansing the defilement of sin. We actually have these two I think wonderful illustrations of how grace works in someone's life, someone who understands that they are defiled by sin. 
So if you're following an outline, here's our outline. Four points today. First, unwashed hands. Second, unclean hearts. Third, healing tassels. I'll explain. Healing tassels. And finally, holy crumbs. Unwashed hands, unclean hearts, healing tassels, and holy crumbs. Now, we're working last week. If you remember, <clears throat> we wanted to work from outside in, so we took <clears throat> the outer kind of pieces of the, of the text, and then we focused on the, on the main, the middle. We're going to do the opposite today. We're going to focus, start in the middle of the text and work ourselves out, because the middle is the teaching, and then the, the two stories flanking the teaching are illustrations of that, and I think are meant to move our hearts closer to Jesus. So let's start with the beginning of chapter 7, where we see yet another delegation from Jerusalem. You see that, <clears throat> that people in Jerusalem, the religious authorities, don't really know what to do with Jesus, so they keep sending these delegations of smart, theologically astute, relig religious, pious, educated people to come and kind of check out what's going on in Jesus' ministry. And so here's one of those delegations, the Pharisees and the scribes, they gather, they observe Jesus, and they notice this really, really strange to them thing that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before dinner. It's a big deal. They're not washing their hands before they eat. Now, the issue is not personal hygiene or the way they were raised. That's not the issue. The issue is ritual cleanness, ritual purity. And it is explained in verses 3 and 4. Mark kind of gives us an aside explaining what was going on in the world of the Pharisees and the scribes, verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many, many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So apparently, they were quite obsessed with various washings, making sure everything is ritually pure. Now, before you start thinking badly of the Pharisees, let's try to understand where they're coming from. And then later in the sermon, I hope to show that we are actually not all that different from them, okay? So, so reserve your judgment, okay, until you can direct it to yourself, and then... Uh, your judgment is not be, will not be as harsh. So what happened? How did they get here? How did they get to this way of life where everywhere they went, they had to wash their hands, they have to you know, dry clean their clothes, they have to steam their couches? Like, how, how did they get here? Now, it's coming, all coming from the Old Testament law. Now, as you know, if you read the Bible, there are many commands in the Old Testament, like in the Leviticus, for, Leviticus, for example, or Numbers, that, that have to do with ritual purity for Israel. Uh, for example, there were certain foods that they couldn't eat. There are certain fabrics that they couldn't mix together and wear, wear side by side or put them in the same cloth. Um, there were sicknesses like skin disease or leprosy that made them unclean. That means that made them excluded from the community life of Israel. Um, if anyone came in contact with a dead body, for example, 
Even if you were meant to do that, you were at a funeral, you were burying your parents, for example, even if that was the case, your contact with a dead body, with a corpse, made you unclean for seven days. And during that time, on the third day, you had to ritually cleanse yourself. And on the seventh day, you had to ritually cleanse yourself, so some sort of a bath or a washing, that only then, after the seven days and the two washings, made you now clean, meaning made you acceptable. You could function as you were supposed to in that community, and especially when it had to do with worship in the temple. Now, the closer a person got to the worship in the temple, the greater the issue of ritual purity became. So lots of people were excluded, for example, from the worship because they were considered unclean. Not temporarily, maybe, so if you came in contact with a dead body, that's seven days. Or if you had a baby, that was a certain number of days you were supposed to be excluded. Or permanently, if you were Gentile, for example, or especially a certain kind of Gentile. Or if you were a person of, with disabilities, that would exclude you from the temple because that was considered to be you were, you were part of somehow too close to death, too close to disease, and so you were excluded from worship in the temple. And it was even stricter for Levites and priests. Priests had to follow more rules to make sure they presented themselves clean before the Lord, and the pinnacle of that ritual cleanness was the Day of Atonement with the high priest, so that's the, the very top of the hierarchy, right? the person who alone once a year could go into the Holy of Holies and bring the sacrifice for the whole people of Israel for that year, that person really needed to be clean. So there were a number of rules followed, and a number of rules actually invented to make sure the rules in the Old Testament were followed so that person could be made acceptable to God and do what they were supposed to do on behalf of Israel. So that's in the Old Testament. That's all from God. Now, why the question, right? And if you read the Old Testament, you, I'm sure, I'm sure you're thinking, why? Why so specific? Why so specific to determine whether this skin disease is acceptable, but this isn't? Why so much inspection? Why so many very specific rules? Well, the reason is simple. Even if the rules are complicated, the reason is simple. The Lord wanted his people to see and not forget and not be able to ignore the separation caused by sin. Now imagine if you lived in that world. Imagine if you lived in that culture where everything you do, you're wondering, does it make me unclean? Am I allowed to go to the temple? Can I touch, touch this? Can I, can I, am I going to get defiled by coming in contact with this person? Or, that's your life. Every day you're, you're in that. Every day you're thinking sin separates Sin defiles, sin makes me unclean, sin excludes me from the worship of God. And that's why any contact with death, with disease would be included in that disability, of any sort of defilement, was considered to be separating you from the Lord of life. If sin brought death into the world, the closer you are to death, right, the farther away you are from God. Now that's the message. That's what that part of the law is about. And yet, there's also God's grace in it, isn't it? Now, there's all these laws that exclude you, but there's also all these means of being included. You were ritually unclean, but then you could wash yourself, right? You could go through a purification rite. 
You could be made acceptable to God by certain things. Now, those are all given by God to the people of Israel to show that, yes, sin separates, but look at how God is drawing you closer. Now, this is the world of the Pharisees. They, they live in this idea of being ritually clean or unclean, being acceptable to God or not acceptable to God, being close to life or being close to death. Now, the Pharisees, of course, and the other religious leaders followed those rules very carefully, and then they added other sorts of rules known as the traditions of the elders to make sure that they remain clean, make sure they remain pure. So they added a lot of other extra washings. So if you, for some reason, didn't do the right washing properly enough, now there's another one, so it will cover that. Or maybe you just didn't know you touched something you weren't supposed to touch. So, well, this washing will take care of that. So there's a, there's a system, right, of ritual washings, of ritual, you, you may always think of it as like baptisms. You're always just being made clean again and again and again so that you could be acceptable to God. Now, a case could be made that a pious Pharisee was cleaner than the high priest on the Day of Atonement, or at least that was probably the goal. They lived separate from sin. Their whole, their whole mentality was, I want to be separate from sin. I want to be separate from anything that might defile me. And here is Jesus. And Jesus is not even making his disciples wash their hands before dinner. Now, they are appalled at that. They are appalled because it is as if Jesus was saying that it was not important to clean yourself to be presentable to God. Or even worse, that it was impossible to do that. Now look at how Jesus responds to their accusations. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus says, you are, you are hypocrites. You look like you care about God, but you don't. Your hearts are far away from God, and your worship is not real worship, even though you follow all these rules. You are concerned with your supposed holiness more than you are concerned with the holiness of God. You obey your own rules better than you obey the law of God. Now, Jesus, of course, can see right through them. And what he sees is this overemphasis on human traditions that are meant to preserve the law of God, right? They're meant to fence the law and make sure that you obey the law. And in reality, they're obeying the rules of man and are disobeying the rules of God. So actually, this emphasis on ritual purity that developed in the Pharisaic religion led them further from the holiness of God. Now, they thought they were holy because they washed themselves. And Jesus says, yes, compared to other people, compared to my disciples, maybe. But compared to God, you are not holy. You're not even clean. And then Jesus gives them this example the example of their false holiness. Now, the lesson here for us is this, to see how that emphasis on external, emphasis on careful obedience of 
man-made rules actually leads to hypocrisy and disobedience of God. Now look at verses 9 through 13. This is an example Jesus uses of their hypocrisy. Now the Lord commands us to honor and take care of our parents. That is God's command, to honor your parents, to take care of them when they're older, to provide for them. But the Pharisees, so concerned with these legal kind of man-made rules, they have, they have found a loophole. They have found this legal maneuver that allowed them, and it's allowed by the traditions of the elders, that allowed them to be relieved of the responsibility to care for their parents. According to their own rules, they were in the clear. But according to God's law, of course, they were in sin. Now, what happened? They had this thing where they could declare their possessions as given to God. They could declare them Corbin, meaning that now they are designated to be used for God, which means that they're off the table for the parents. They're not available for the parents. And if you say that, and if you do that, according to the traditions of the elders, you didn't have to now take care of your parents because you were so pious that all your possessions were now dedicated to God. And Jesus says, I see right through you. You think you're holy because you've done that pious thing. You think you're holy because you're washing yourself all the time and you're avoiding all the sinners. But in reality, you will have forsaken your parents. The closest people to you, the first people you're supposed to take care of now, you don't even care about them. You've removed that responsibility off of you by following human commandments, man-made rules. So according to their own rules, they were clean, or maybe even holy, as they thought. But according to the law of God, they were filthy. They were defiled. They were unclean. Because ultimately, Jesus says, you cannot cleanse yourself of sin. No matter how many times you wash, no matter how many legal maneuvers you, you perform and what you declare your possessions as belonging to, he says it doesn't matter because the defilement is actually in your heart. It's not on your hands. It's not in how you use your money. It is in your heart. Pharisees, of course, wanted to argue about unclean, unwashed hands. But Jesus wanted to deal with unclean hearts. And so he draws the conversation to that. He sees through them. He confronts them. He convicts them. And then he goes right to the heart of the matter, forgive my pun, and, and deals with the real issue. Verse 15. There is nothing, Jesus says, outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The problem of sin is not primarily external, Jesus says. You think that by washing your hands, making sure your meal is prepared properly according to kosher laws, making sure your, your couch is clean and there's no dirt that gets on you or on your food or on your drink, that somehow you're preventing unclean things from coming into your body and you remain holy. He says, no, your concern should be what's coming out of your heart. Because there's something in your heart that makes it okay for you to not care for your parents and still feel pious and religious and holy. 
And he says, that's what you have to deal with because that's the defilement of sin because that's where sin lives. It can be solved, Jesus says, by external washings, but only by internal purification. And then he explains it in greater detail to his disciples in verses 20 through 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, he says. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, come from within. And they defile a person. As Jesus often does, he just flips it on its head. He just completely turns the whole conversation around. And he's saying, you are concerned that dirt doesn't get into you from outside. And you are not even seeing how dirty your heart is. You're not even seeing how you're treating other people. You're not even seeing that you are fine with breaking God's law if you can explain it by human tradition. You're not even seeing the envy and the covetousness and evil thoughts and foolishness and sensuality, all the stuff that comes out of your heart. Sure, you haven't been hanging out with any sinners, but look at your heart. Where does this come from? Where do all these sinful things come from if you have protected yourself so well from the outside influence of sin? Alexander Solzhenitsyn who spent many years as a political prisoner in the Gulag colonies and could have easily, I mean, he could have easily blamed everything bad on the oppressive regime of the Soviet Union. It would have been easy to do, right? Completely justifiable to say, all my problems are because I am persecuted by the Soviet regime. And yet this is what he says. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That's why Solzhenitsyn could say, bless your prison. <laughs> he blessed his prison because he learned there that evil doesn't reside in the political regimes. It actually resides in the human heart, and every human heart has sin inside. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I discovered that my car smelled, and I had put a bag of trash in the trunk of the car several day, days prior to the fact that <clears throat> the time that I discovered that my car smelled. Now, it's, it's not relevant to this sermon why I had a bag of trash in the trunk of my car. <laughs> but I did. It was juicy trash, too. <laughs> and so a couple of days passed, and, you know, in the beginning I thought, man, I must have left an apple or something in the car. You know, you, know, you eat an apple and you leave a core of the apple in the car, you get that little bit of a sour, sweet taste. Well, that, that, that progressed, uh, you know. And eventually I remembered, several days later, I remembered. And 
I mean, it's, it's a gross experience, you know. But it was inside the car. All this trash was in the trunk for days, and the car just, it just permeated the car. Even after I took it out, you know, and Febreze and all that stuff, like it, it took a couple of weeks. And it's, even now there's a, don't ask me to give you a ride. There's, there's a, <laughs> there is a faint smell of garbage in, in, my, in my car. That, that's us. You know, we're walking around with a bag of garbage in our hearts. No wonder it smells, right? I mean, what, what can you do? The only thing you can do is you got to take that garbage out. You have to discover the cause of it, and you have to get rid of it. The only thing you can do is get rid of it. Otherwise, it'll just keep smelling, and, and things will happen in your life. Defilement will spread, and yes, it will spread externally, but it begins internally. That's what Jesus is saying. It's in the heart. What defiles you comes out from your heart. It comes out from within. Now, you may think the Pharisees of Jesus' day were misguided or, or just maybe they're just silly with all their ritual washings. But I'd like to show you that we are much more like them than we would like to think. We're like them in the sense of, in our sense of defilement. We, too, feel that there's something unclean about us. There's something defiled about us. And we're like them in our attempts to purify ourselves by external means. Now, we don't maybe do the same things they did, but don't we live the same way, knowing that there's something wrong and yet trying to address it by external means? The truth is, is, is that we all have filthy hearts, all of us. All of us have filthy hearts, and yet we insist on dealing with it by washing our hands. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, do you think our, our, our obsession with personal hygiene, our white teeth, clear skin, spotless, wrinkle-free clothing, do you think has nothing to do with our sense of inner defilement? Don't you think that's, that's a subtle way for us to just make ourselves be a little better, a little cleaner than we feel? Do you think billions of dollars, and by the way, billions of dollars every year in the U.S. is spent on therapy, do you think it has no relation to our conviction that something is wrong with us? Do you really think virtue signaling on social media and today's cancel culture is not connected at all with our desire to cleanse ourselves? You don't think those are, those are means of, of washings? We're just making ourselves feel better, making ourselves look better? Do you think our political division today is not rooted in our conviction that we are more pure than our opponents? You don't think that has nothing to do with it? Now, we can rationalize our sense of moral defilement by blaming others. Of course we can. We can blame our parents. We can blame our church. We can blame our government. But can we really escape that sense that, that there's something dirty about us, there's something wrong about us, there's, something, there's a defilement that's ours. We can try not to feel the rot in our heart by numbing ourselves with entertainment and food and alcohol and drugs. But can you really get rid of that feeling? Can you really get rid of the feeling that there is something wrong with you, with me? We can commit to a noble cause and try to earn the purity badge by doing something great, by supporting the right thing. But can we really expect 
that accomplishment to make us pure on the inside? Does it really cancel out everything else you feel and you've done and you struggle with? How do you wash yourself? What do you do to, to address this sense of defilement? What makes you feel better about yourself? What makes you feel cleaner than someone else? Moral defilement is an internal problem, Jesus says. Sin is in the heart. But our solution is often to address it by external means. Like the Pharisees, we, we too create and follow traditions of the elders, don't we? If you do these things, then you're okay. If you follow these rules, then you're fine. And there's a religious version of that, and there's a secular version of that, right? But if you meet these expectations, if you do these things, then you will be pronounced clean by your peers. Ultimately, we're making ourselves holy only in comparison to other people who don't follow the same traditions. And yet we remain unclean in the sight of God. John Steinbeck wrote, All men are moral, only their neighbors are not. All men are moral, only their neighbors are not. Because we can justify any choice as a moral choice, as the right choice, as the clean choice, as the pure choice. It's just those other people that don't understand. They don't do what I do. We can always find others who don't wash their hands before dinner, right? And congratulate ourselves on our moral purity. Well, I was raised well. I was raised right. I always wash my hands before dinner. Not like those people. Not like Jesus' disciples who don't even care about moral purity. We feel cleaner in comparison to others who don't educate their children the way we do. Who don't take care of their property the way we do. Who don't vote the way we do. Or who care too much about their property. But these are all traditions of men. So how do you feel superior to others? What makes you feel better, cleaner, purer than someone else? Which tradition of men do you follow trying to address the moral defilement that's deep inside you? And then think about how God sees you. How clean would you feel? How clean should you feel when judged by the law of God? Is your heart really in line with God's holiness? Well, the holiness of others, sure, maybe you'll fare okay. What about God's holiness? Don't fool yourself like the Pharisees. Our hearts are defiled and we cannot cleanse them. We cannot make them pure. At best, we can pretend. At best, we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves by comparison with other people. But by comparison with God, all of us stand defiled and unclean and impure. So what can we do? Can something be done to cleanse us from within? Now we see these two wonderful stories illustrating the possibility of internal cleansing by Christ. And both of them have to do with grace. Of course they do. The gospel says that we cannot cleanse ourselves. But once we acknowledge our inescapable internal defilement, we can be cleansed by grace. That's the gospel. No way, I can't clean myself. I can't make myself pure no matter how many times I wash my hands. But if I acknowledge my filthiness, if I acknowledge my moral defilement and I go to Christ, His grace 
can cleanse me. There's, there's a power to God's grace that all of us are, are learning to discover and rediscover and get to new depths of as you grow as a Christian. And that power is greater than anything in this world. You put Taylor Swift and, and the, the NFL together, and, and there's more power in Christ than that. <laughs> because that grace gets deep inside, because that grace deals with the heart. It doesn't just deal with the externals. It deals with the very essence of who we are. So what do I mean by grace? Well, grace is something that God does from outside. And you see, all, all the, the Pharisees wanted to do is they wanted to cleanse themselves. But grace has to come from outside. It has to come from God himself. Healing has to come from outside of ourselves. That's the symbolism of Christian baptism. You don't baptize yourself. You get baptized, right? You don't wash yourself. You are washed in his blood. Grace is being made holy even though we are filthy. That's grace. Now look at this wonderful story in the, the end of chapter 6 of Mark, 53 through 56. Such a vivid illustration of grace. Jesus comes to a certain area. The news of his coming spreads. And look at verse 56. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I mean, what a beautiful illustration of coming to Christ for healing and for cleansing and actually receiving it. Even touching the fringe of Jesus' garment brought healing to the sick. This is a complete reversal of the Old Testament purity laws. Because in the Old Testament, you touch something unclean and you become unclean. But here, you touch something clean, you touch Jesus, and you become holy. You become what Jesus is. You become clean and pure. Now, of course, for this healing to happen, the person had to give up on all their efforts to get better on their own. I mean, look, look at these people. They're desperate people. There's no hope for them anywhere. All they can do is bring their sick, right, and just place them somewhere in proximity of Jesus so that maybe as Jesus was passing by or maybe as Jesus was staying put, they could just grasp for the fringe of his garment. If only that could happen, they would be healed. Now imagine the level of desperation if you trust in that, right? That means you've tried everything else. That means you, now you know you can't heal yourself. You can't fix and cleanse the moral defilement in your heart. All they needed was to get just close enough to Jesus, just close enough to touch something of his, not even Jesus himself, not even his body, but something that touched his body. And even that degree of separation, that was enough. That was enough. Just a little bit of grace was enough to bring complete healing to them. Now, if ritual uncleanness in the Old Testament, which of course included disease and disability, all these people who are brought to Jesus are excluded from the temple, by the way. They are considered ritually unclean and unacceptable to God. So if ritual uncleanness had to do with, with being close to, to death, proximity to death, then cleansing must must have something to do with proximity to life. 
And here is life coming into the world. Here is Jesus coming into the world. The author of life himself, God of God, the light of the world, he's coming in and just touching a little bit of his garment could make you well. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, what, what, a, what a story. What, I mean, doesn't that move your imagination? Doesn't it move your heart? It makes you think of Jesus. It makes you think how powerful grace is and makes you want to reach out and touch and maybe grab the tassel. Now, the tassel is probably what they're, what they're grabbing, by the way. There's wonderful symbolism here. The fringes of Jesus' clothes were, were those blue tassels that the pious Jews wore in accordance to the law of Moses. The same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which makes most commentators think that that's what they were grabbing. It was easy to grab. Jesus had tassels on his clothes. And as he was passing by, they were able to grab it. Now, according to Numbers 15, they were worn as a reminder of two things. So God commanded his people to wear these tassels. And you see religious Jews even today wear them. You can see that, kind of the fringes of their clothing and there's little tassels. The reason you wore those, according to the law of Moses, were, were two, two reasons. One, as a reminder that you were redeemed by God, that the Lord took you out of Egypt, that he freed you from slavery, that he brought you into this new nation, that he gave you the law, all the blessings that God gave you. Don't forget, even as you get dressed and you wear these funny clothes, right? You remember, I'm not my own. God redeemed me. And the second reason, according to Numbers 15, is that you would obey all his commandments, including the ritual purity laws, of course. So a person who wore these tassels believed that they were special, that they were redeemed by God, and that they had to obey the law and live a pure life. And so when the sick were grasping for the tassels, what are they grasping for? the covenant of grace. The God who can redeem them now even as he redeemed his people out of Egypt. The God who can heal them from moral defilement even as he has done for his people for so many years. The God who was gracious enough to see them in their slavery and redeem them and free them. They're also grasping for the active obedience of Jesus. Jesus who obeyed the law. Jesus who was not defiled. Jesus who was pure. The holiness of God, the glory of God coming into the world, being embodied in the human form. They're grasping for that. The obedience of Jesus maybe can be applied to me. Maybe God can see me as holy as Jesus. Maybe God can extend his grace that he has extended to all his people throughout all time. Maybe I too can be declared clean and acceptable to him. They're applying the cleanness of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus to their sinfulness. What a, what a picture of grace. I mean, isn't that what happens when we, when we first come to him? We just, we just grasp a little bit of grace and are surprised that it covers all our sins. That somehow Jesus lived for all of me and he never broke the law. And so whatever I did and my brokenness is covered by his obedience that he died for me, and so I just, I just need a little bit of that. I just need to be close enough to him so I can touch his clothing. And that is enough. And I can be cleaned. I can be declared as, as obedient as Jesus, as holy as he is, as pure as he is. Last illustration. Okay, let's look at this, this last 
portion. That's another story that gives us this vivid picture of grace. And this is, um, uh, we find that in chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, the Syrophoenician woman. Now this, this woman comes. She's a Gentile. Not even supposed to come to Jesus. She's not supposed to even, even talk to him. And she goes to him, and in desperation that only a parent knows, if you're a parent, you know exactly what that means. Somebody said there are cowards, there are heroes, and there are parents, right? Because parents just, just have this obnoxious desire, right? to do anything they can for their children. And they, will, they, they don't care about the barriers. They don't care about civility. They'll just go get whatever their children need. So she comes to Jesus because her daughter has an unclean spirit. Now, it's important that it says unclean spirit, right? The mother is unclean. The daughter is unclean. And she's coming to Jesus, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, she's not coming because she's expecting to be accepted by him. She's not coming like a Pharisee, having cleansed herself, having washed, having presented herself well, having emphasized her lineage, having emphasized her covenant obligations. That's not what she's doing. She's coming with the boldness and desperation of grace. If this is going to work, it will work in spite of who I am. It will work in spite of who Jesus is, it seems. And so she begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus says, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now he's using, he's, he's talking about Gentiles as the Pharisees would talk about Gentiles. Here are the children of Israel and here are the dogs. Why is Jesus so rude? Why is Jesus saying that? I think Jesus is very deliberate, knowing the heart of the woman. He wants to emphasize, he wants to highlight the grace that is involved in this healing. He wants to emphasize that there is nothing that she is bringing to his table. That she is coming desperate. And that anybody who comes to Jesus in this way and is not offended by grace is not offended by grace, will receive a cleansing, will receive deliverance, will receive healing. Spurgeon said, the master had talked about the children's bread. Now, she argued, since you are the master of the table of grace, I know that you are a generous housekeeper, and there is sure to be abundance of bread on your table." There will be such an abundance for the children that there will be crumbs to throw on the floor for the dogs, and the children will fare none the worse because the dogs are fed. She thought him one who kept so good a table that all that she needed would only be a crumb in comparison. Yet remember, Spurgeon says, what she wanted was to have the devil cast out of her daughter. It was a very great thing to her, but she had such a high esteem of Christ that she said, it is nothing to him, it is but a crumb for Christ to give. And so she's asking for crumbs from his table, knowing that even a little bit of grace is going to be enough for her. And she's not offended, because she's not a Pharisee. She's not a hypocrite. 
She's not bringing any leverage to the table. She's simply asking for Jesus to be gracious. Are, are you offended by grace? Are you offended that God can forgive anybody he wants? Are you offended by parables like uh, the parable of the workers where you know, the owner of the vineyard calls some at a certain hour and then calls others with just one hour left to work and then pays everybody the same? Does that offend you? Be careful. Be careful because it offends you. It may be that there are some remnants of that kind of pure, purity that the, the Pharisees wanted, the kind of separateness from sinners that the Pharisees wanted. This woman is not offended by grace because she knows if she has any chance to be healed, for her daughter to be healed, it has to come by grace. I read an article about uh, a death row inmate he was supposed to be executed in Texas last week and it got postponed or delayed or something. So we don't know what's going to happen to him. Uh, Will Spear is his name. He is leading worship. He is praying on death row. He became a minister, kind of a chaplain on death row. Does that offend you? Does that offend you that God can take someone like him and make him a minister and make him somebody who can give hope to others on death row? The kingdom belongs to those who are not offended by God's grace. The kingdom belongs to those who can hear Jesus say, well, if you want to come to me like a dog under the table and get the crumbs off my table, then you can be healed. And we say, great. Because <laughs> just a couple of crumbs is okay with me. If I can just grab a tassel of your clothing, that is okay for me. Because even just a little bit of grace will bring the healing I desire. And finally, and we're going to go into communion. How can Jesus extend such grace? How can Jesus make filthy people pure? How can Jesus, just because he wants to, transform us? And, the, and the, I think the key to that is in Mark's sort of offhand remark that Jesus declared all foods clean in verse 19. Mark just kind of throws it in. It says, thus he declared all foods clean. What Mark means is that because of what Jesus did, it changed the whole moral purity landscape. Somehow Jesus was able to fulfill the law and was able to set up different rules for us, a new covenant. This is not just an improvement on the Jewish religion. This is a new covenant. Now, what did Jesus do? On the cross, Jesus himself not just touched death, not just was injured, not just experienced brokenness in his body, but he actually embraced death, experienced death, experienced the full weight of defilement and sin. And he did that so he can cleanse us. What happened on the cross is remarkable, and I hope every Sunday as we gather, we leave in wonder of the crucified. Because Jesus, the purest person, the purest person, fully obedient to the law, fulfilling all of God's obligations, holy in his divinity, that's the person who became utterly defiled on the cross. So we could be cleansed, made pure, and accepted by God 
by grace.